There is a text, a verse, in the text or passage that was read earlier that I'll be focusing on in John chapter 8. Thank you. And it is verse 24. If you were here yesterday, I mentioned this verse. I have the New King James Version, and I'll read it and then pray. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I haven't looked at the Christian Standard Version. I assume it says, for if you do not believe that I am he. Is that correct? Okay, is is the he in italics? Okay, so you know what italics mean. The translation committee supplied a word to try to help the sense come across clearer. The question is, is the sense I am he or just I am? The Greek text is I am. And there's at least one other place where we know the translators of the English Bibles in John 8:58, where they didn't say I am he. Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was, I am full stop. I take verse 24 to be an I am full stop claimed by our Lord, and I'll try to show you why I'm not the only one who does that. By the way, if I was the only one who does that, you should tell me to stop preaching. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come. We're asking that you would bless the preaching of your word, help the preacher, help the hearers, If there are lost people, save them. And those of us that are saved, remind us of things we know. Help us to understand this text in its context. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If we had time to go through the chapter, the passage here, I believe this section starts in verse 12, back in uh, earlier in the chapter of chapter 8. Our Lord is in... Jerusalem, he's at the temple. The John's Gospel has our Lord there many, many times, uh, usually going toe-to-toe or having conversations, interactions, verbal interactions with uh, the Jews. John uses that word quite often, referring to the Jewish leaders. That doesn't mean that it exclusively has only Jesus and Jewish leaders, Pharisees or whoever they are. Disciples were with him. And then just regular people that would have been coming to Jerusalem, coming to the temple uh, three times a year. All the Jews, the ancient Jews in covenant with God, were called to come to Jerusalem for three annual festivals. Jerusalem would go from somewhere around 100,000 to three or four times, if not more, that um, those three times a year. So it's not as if Jesus and and two rabbis or two Uh, Pharisees are sitting in the corner and having a quiet discussion. It's most likely there's a lot of people, dozens and dozens possibly, hearing these words of our Lord. These words in verse 24 are what I want to concentrate. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, again, I am full stop, you will die in your sins. I think I can say this, that this is one of the most sobering 
statements in all of the written word of God. Because when I say, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, that last part doesn't sound good, even if you don't know what it means. Right? You will die in your sins. Doesn't sound very pleasant. Uh, It isn't. It's the worst way to die, as I hope to show you once we get there. So I want to call your attention to these words, believer and unbeliever. These are important words. If you get the identity of our Lord Jesus Christ wrong, you die the worst kind of death there is to die. You die in your sins. So I have a question. Actually, I have two or three questions, and then we have a final section of the sermon I'll call contemplation. Um, My first question is this. Why will they die in their sins? Well, because they do not believe that I am, full stop. Um, Jesus makes these kind of statements, I am, dot, 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 several times in the Gospel of John. There are at least two I am, full stop statements. I'm claiming this is one. I've noted John 8:58 already. But let's consider a brief overview of these I am statements because we need to compare the fuller statements with this very brief I am full stop type. Okay? So, for instance, um, John 6, 35, 41, and 48, I am the bread of life. I am, what are you? The bread of life. Okay, so that um, is an expanded version of this briefer one, and I'm going to distinguish between these expanded versions that say something about what he is, I am the bread of life, and the ones that just say, I am full stop. I'm going to distinguish between those two because I believe the Bible forces us to. It has, it puts pressure on us to do that. I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. I am the door of the sheep, John 10. Twice he says that. I am the good shepherd, twice in John 10. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. 25. But this I am statement in John 8:24 is unlike those longer statements. It is like this briefer statement in John 8:58 that I mentioned before, where our Lord says, "Before Abraham was, some versions have was born, I am." So what does this abbreviated sense mean? What does it mean when he says, I am full stop? Whatever it means, you have to believe that is true about Jesus or you die in your sins. That's kind of important, right? Well, even if you say no, you're wrong. It is. So here are the words of uh, Augustine. I heard uh, John Gershner once, I think, say, say that... St. Augustine is in Florida, and St. Augustine was the 5th century church theologian of North Africa. Listen to what he says. What is this if you do not believe that I am? I am what? That's the question, right? Because when he says, unless you believe that I am, you're going, what are you? But Augustine I think he's getting it right here. He says, if you do not believe that I am, I am what? There is nothing added. I am the door of the sheep. 
I am the good shepherd. Just, I am. He goes on and says, And because he added nothing, there is much implied in him only saying, I am. See, for 21st century readers, we might not come to that conclusion. Augustine says, I'm going to read this again, There's nothing added, and because, because he added nothing, there is much implied in him saying, I am. Why would he say that? He's got information brewing around in his mind that's conditioning the way he reads these words. He says, because he did not say uh, anything after I am, it implies much in these words by saying only I am. And then he gives the reason. For God had used the same words with Moses, I am who I am. See what he just did? He allowed the Bible to help him him interpret the Bible. When he reads the I am full stop statements, he goes, my mind, my memory's triggered. I've read that before. Way back, Exodus chapter 3, we'll be there in a second, in a moment. When God is revealing a new name through Moses to ancient Israel and to us, I am who I am. Augustine goes on and so by these words, if you do not believe that I am, I think our Lord meant nothing else than this. If you do not believe that I am God, you shall die in your sins. Okay, so our Lord is self-identifying him, himself uh, as the I am, as revealed, as a revealed name of Yahweh Elohim through Moses to ancient Israel. He's bringing that title and he's saying that applies to me as well. This is a Massive claim of the Lord Jesus. So Augustine, I think he's right, along with many, many others, uh, make this claim basically, and I'll put it in my own words. People who deny the deity or divinity of our Lord die in their sins. So if you get the identity of Christ wrong, but you get his work right, you'll die in your sins. This is... An incredible claim by Augustine, and I think he's right. Next question of our text. Does our Lord make this claim elsewhere? I am full stop. Yes, we've already seen the John 8.58 text, right? Let's listen to the wider context of John 8.58 and see if that helps us further understand John 8.24. reads, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. There's a ten-part series of sermons right there in those words. Okay, so here we are in the generation during which our Lord sojourned on the earth, and he's going toe-to-toe with the Jews, religious leaders. Disciples are listening. Um, Just regular Jews that would be there in the temple, there are probably some of those that are listening. And he tells his audience, go back into history to Abraham, and I can tell you something about him. He was rejoicing at that time to see a day in the future that terminates on me. Abraham must have, must have had messianic promises, correct, that framed his thought, that were eschatological, that were future-oriented from the day in which he lived and that found their target, their goal, their scope, their bullseye in Christ incarnate and ministering. Abraham was a Christian, by the way. That wasn't a joke. He was. He wouldn't have called himself a Christian, but if he could 
talk to us now, he'd say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I was, but I didn't realize it. I was a Messianic believer, which is another word for Christ, Messiah, anointed one. So he was a Christian. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was or was born, I am. Therefore, see their response. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now this comes, this little discourse here uh, at the end of John 8, comes at the end of a long discussion I already mentioned. I think it starts way back at John 8, 12. And notice our Lord does not say, before Abraham was born, I saw him. That's the way they put it. You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? He didn't say that. Instead, he makes another I am full stop claim. His claim is that before Abraham was born, over 2,000 years before these words were spoken by Jesus, I am. Abraham's here, born, and then he's in existence and he lives and moves and has his being. Prior to that point in history, Jesus says, the name that God revealed to and through Moses to ancient Israel, the new name, I am, applied to me back then. So he's arguing implicitly some form of pre-existence to his incarnate state, right? Because like yesterday, if you were there, he has lungs and lips. He brings air in and he forces it out over throat organs and changes his tongue and lips just like we do, and Aramaic words, sounds came out that went into ears and caused things to be triggered in minds that caused them to go way back in history and go, uh-oh, this man, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. You know how they said that in John chapter 10, I think it was. He's doing a similar thing here in John 8:56 through 58, 8.58. He's not claiming that he is over 2,000 years old. That's kind of the way they read it. You're not even 50. What are you talking about? Well, if we were there, I'd say, hey, he's not claiming to be 2,000 years old. It's weirder than that. That would be weird. But if you read the Bible in the early chapters, some people lived a long time. His claim is much more mysterious than that. The reason I say that is because the words I am come from Exodus 3, hinted at in that quote from Augustine, where God was revealing himself to Moses well after Abraham's death. And in verse 59 of John 8, there is a hint that this is more than a claim of being old due to the recorded response of the Jews. Even though they said, you're not even 50, what you're talking about? What are you talking about? When he says, before Abraham was born, uh, I am, John says, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. So at some point, it seems like they started to connect the dots and going, you're identifying as the I am. The I am is Yahweh, and Yahweh is Elohim. God Almighty, Lord of the Covenant, is the one that names himself, I am. But you're a man. How can you make this claim? 
Now, I don't think they picked up stones to throw at him because they they blew their stacks or they lost self-control or they had anger issues. They probably had anger issues, but uh, I don't think that's the cause of this. I think it's their conclusion of the meaning of the words. A self-identification of Jesus of Nazareth with the I am of Exodus chapter 3. So he was claiming to be that I am of the Old Testament. Now, digging a little more deeper into John 8, 24, the words I am and the John 8, 58, where do these words I am come from and what did they mean when first revealed? So if we're going to understand John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, we're going to ask the question, does Jesus use the same language elsewhere? Yes, at least John 8, 58. Next question, does, where does that language come from? Did Jesus invent it? No. Where does it come from? Where was it first revealed? What did it mean when it was first revealed? So it comes from Exodus 3. I'll read verses 13 through 15 of Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, I am is the Lord, Capital, uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, the covenant Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob have sent me to you. See what Jesus is claiming? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Yahweh, Elohim, I am. That's who I am. This is my memorial name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So God is revealing in that passage uh, his identity to Moses. The I am is the Lord God of the fathers, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The name of God, uh, Lord, uh, points us to his covenantal dealings with Abraham. But the name I am is different. It's not merely a synonym for Yahweh. I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. These are, these are strange words. These are new words, a new name revealed by God, from God, through Moses to the ancient Jews and to us. And very well known at the time that Jesus was having this conversation in the temple. So he is identifying himself as the great I am. Now, what do these words mean? It's one thing to say where they come from. They come from God through Moses. We can actually read the words in Exodus 3. It's another thing to ask the question, what does it mean when God identifies himself, names himself as I am who I am? Tell them I am has sent you. Now, your pastor is either working on a Ph.D. in Old Testament or the Old Testament Ph.D. is working on him. Finish that thing, brother. 
In the last 150 years, guys like him, Old Testament scholars, have diverted, have, have left a more ancient and long-lasting interpretation of the name I am and basically made it functionally synonymous with Lord or Yahweh. What does I am mean? Yahweh. God toward us in covenant. God for us in covenant. If I, there's a button up here, I would press it. I think they're wrong. I think we ought to distinguish meaning, the meaning of Lord and the meaning of I am. I don't think they're functionally synonymous. And there are um, reformed theologians in, in our own day that have published uh, a lot of, well, some helpful stuff and some not so helpful stuff that take this very view and go back 150 years to, I don't know if anybody's German descent here, but sorry, some of your theologians in the 19th century were nuts. Okay, they go back to these liberal Germans who weren't orthodox, who were interpreting scripture as if it were any other book, like any other book, because they were enlightened. And they go with their interpretation instead of asking the question, what does the long history of the Christian church teach on this? So I think that's the wrong view to take. I think there's a better view. It's a much better view, and it's a way older view. It has a long pedigree throughout various uh, denominations as well. And that is that this um, God who is Lord, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God of Israel here, is revealing something about himself that is unique to God in the words I am and can't be claimed by creatures. Okay, so it's not, it's not a mere claim that I exist because I can make that claim. It's actually more profound than that. In other words, when God identifies himself as the I am, it is not the same as me claiming I exist or you claiming that you exist. We do exist. We're here. I can claim that I exist, which I just did. But the moment I do, which I did about five or ten seconds ago almost now, I don't now exist as I did when I made the claim that I exist, right? I changed. I got older. You don't need birthdays to get older. Sorry. You just got older, sister. We can't see the change, but we know that time elapsed and time is the measure of creaturely change. What I am now, I am not a moment later, for every moment brings change upon me. In other words, we are creatures. Creatures are changed, uh, are change agents and are changed by an agent. We can change things like you could say dumb things about me like you did earlier. Um, and all the while we're being changed. God brings us into existence. God preserves us in our existence. God moves us into the various stages of our existence. And then there's, you know, termination, an eschatological goal of our existence uh, as well. This name, I am who I am, is unique to God. It's not... Just a claim of mere existence that we creatures might make. 
Here's Augustine again. Is is a name for the unchanging. Everything that changes ceases to be what it was and begins to be what it was not. Is, is. Isn't that great? True is, I am, isness. That's what he's getting at. True is, genuine is, real is, belongs only to one who does not change. See the difference? When I say, I am, I just took a breath, by the way. I changed. I added this, this, they call it an accidental feature. I sucked in air. It's not essential to my being to always be sucking in air, and I'm not always sucking in air. I am an air sucker in, or however you would say that. And so are you, by the way. So it's not creaturely... Claim. This is a divine claim of divine isness. Augustine says elsewhere, eternity is the very substance of God in which there is no possibility of change. In Him, nothing is past as though it no longer existed, and nothing is future as though it had not yet come to be. There is nothing in God's eternity except is. There is no was, no will be, because anything that was has ceased to be, and anything that will be does not yet exist. You ever read something like that? And he's going, what did I just read? I think you got the gist of what he's getting at. Me saying I am is one thing, but when God says I am, it's a God thing. If you were here, I think I drew the line yesterday. Here's creation, here's God, here's not God. When not God, creatures, claim existence, which we're doing, that's one thing. But our existence comes into being. We don't, right? There was a time when we weren't. Was there a time when God was not? Does divine existence come into being? No, that's above the line. Does creaturely existence come into being? Yes. Does creaturely existence come into being and maintain the exact form and manner of being in which it originally came to be? No. Right? We change. We lose hair. I was picking on you yesterday, wasn't I? Sorry. Is that natural or you do that that on purpose? Okay. Okay, so see the difference between I exist, I am, and God is? My amness comes upon me from outside of me. It's given to me. It is contingent upon the will of the Creator to give me it being. There's nothing in God's eternity except is. There's no was, no will be, because anything that was has ceased to be, and anything that will be does not yet exist. So if I live one more moment... Uh, one more second, and I just did. You did too. That one more second is yet future from our current vantage point. It just passed, by the way. and But it didn't exist before it came. And neither do I exist as one second older, at least not yet. Now I do. See, we just, you know, you change. We change a lot. Uh, time is the measure of creaturely morphation, morphing, changing. 
If I live one more second, I will become what I was not. I just did, and so did you. But Augustine's point is this. But God is. If that's not clear enough, he continues, sift the mutations of things. i got to stop there. Every time I quote this, I say, I just love that statement. Sift the mutations, the changes of things, everything other than God, and you will find was and will be. Think on God, and you will find the is, where was and will be cannot exist. Was and will be. Was, is, and will be exists with us. Is is all that God is. This means God doesn't have existence. He is his existence. Existence does not come upon God as it does us. He does not become, we do. Wholly unlike God, we have our existence from God and our existence changes by God. Paul says this, for in him we live and move, there's change there, and exist. We have life, our life is teeming with change, we actually are. But there was a time when we actually weren't. That's not God. God does not rely upon us or anything else for his existence. He is, full stop, he is the unchanging I am who causes change without change in him. Do you cause change? Yep. Do you cause change without change in you? Nope. Why? You're on this side of the line. Does God cause change under the line? Yes. As God causes change under the line, does that mean there's change in God as he's doing that? Nope. You say, that's weird. Yep. Remember the maxim yesterday? It would be strange indeed if God were not strange to us. This I am claim is strange in itself back there. Stranger when Jesus makes it in the first century and attaches it to himself. He is the unchanging I am who causes change without change in him. This is why there's an older hymn. This is why we sing, Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame. That's a weird way to say it. Earth received her frame? Earth existed and then received a frame? That doesn't sound right. It's poetic, you know. And earth received her frame from everlasting thou art God, eternality of the divine being, God, from everlasting thou art God to endless years the same. Now, this is poetic. This is a hymn. Endless year, come on, years aren't, aren't endless. The very term year is a limiting uh, f- factor in the phrase 
to endless years the same. Years are measurements of time. But how else are we going to talk? We could say to endless eternity the same or something like that. And that's what it means. James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. One of the Puritans, Thomas Manton, I think, commenting on this, says, there is no wrinkle in the brow of eternity. You say, well, Thomas Manton thinks God has a brow? No, he's using figurative language to tell you God is. Full stop. Though changes come to us and in us from God, in God, there is no change. He is. Uh, Hopefully, when I get back to the United States, I'm going to try to cause change to occur on my body. I'm already doing that here, but in the wrong direction. Okay, And as I do that, I'll try to pump weights with one of my sons, which we have been doing for several years. It doesn't look like it, but we've been not being faithful as of late. But we're going to try to get more faithful and try to add some cardio to the weightlifting, and my wife will force me to eat better and all that stuff. But I'm going to have to exert energy to do that. If you've ever jogged, you know, you, you get tired, right? So we, we deplete it, we use it, we utilize it, and then we got to go stock it up again somehow. Water, food, sleep helps as well. When we expend, when we exert our strength, energy depletes, goes out from us. That has to be restored in order for us to do that again. Is that how God executes power? God executes power, and as it's going out from him, it's depleting, and the power, divine power pack goes down, down, and down, and then he has to go charge it up someplace. That's below-line stuff, right? That's not God. Though change comes to us and is from God, in God there is no change. He is. Here's what uh, somebody else said. You are what you are, for whatever you are at any time or in any way, this you are holy and forever. This is, you know, a claim to immutability. God is unable to be anything other than he always is, lest he not be God. God simply is, somebody else says, originally, authoritatively, and incomparably, and no creature can say, as God does, I am who I am. So I'm trying to get this creator-creature distinction beat into our heads, okay? What it means for me to say I am is not the same thing it means for God to claim to be the I am. So when Jesus says, I am, it's not as simplistic as, oh, by the way, guys, you didn't think I exist, I actually exist. It's not what he's saying. He's identifying himself with that one. That's who I am. So, um, the last thing I'm going to do is some contemplations. I told the congregation this morning, I told my church this several years ago, 
I'm not doing application at the end of sermons. It's too moral. You end up moralizing too much. And I have this tendency to want to rule your lives and tell you how to live, you know, everything. So we'll call it contemplation because it sounds like more intellectually satisfying. It's just application with a more technical term. Contemplation, musing in our minds, tossing things that we've talked about that I've already said and trying to draw out some entailments from it. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So what does all this mean to us? Well, first of all, these are actually terrifying words. Okay, I gotta be, I gotta say that. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I think I said this earlier. Even if you don't know what that means, it doesn't sound pleasant, right? Die in your sins? Who wants to do that? Well, what does it even mean to die in your sins? Because if you know what it means to die in your sins, it gets even worse than just the mere hearing of the words. Because you might hear the words and attach all kinds of things to it that don't really draw out the meaning of what it actually means to die in your sins. What does it mean to die in your sins? To die in one's sins means to die without forgiveness. You don't want to die that way. It means to die guilty. What does it mean to die guilty? To be guilty is to be justly liable to punishment. According to whose standard? God's. Who makes the judgment? God. Okay, it's not us. I'm not as bad as that guy or that gal. It's God who determines if you're guilty or not. And it's not how you feel about it. Well, I I feel pretty good about myself. It's not subjective determined by our own thoughts. Um, One of my children used to come into our room at night and say, Mom, my heart's beeping. You know what his heart was beeping about? He did some no-no. He felt that he had done wrong. And in this child's case, he had probably done wrong way more times than his heart was beeping. But he could have been wrong sometimes. Have, you ever, have your heart ever beeped? And you actually learned more about Scripture and concluded, my heart shouldn't have beeped. That wasn't a sin. I allowed some man-made law regulate my conscience and I felt dirty about something that I shouldn't have felt dirty about. That's subjective guilt. To die in your sins isn't, doesn't mean to die you know, on a bad day, on a gloomy day when you felt bad about your life. It means to die objectively guilty God has determined that you are liable to punishment. That's a bad way to die. To die in your sins means to die under a sentence of condemnation surely to come. And you can't stop it. If you die in your sins, you're going to ultimately be condemned and consigned, okay, and not to a pleasant place. To die in one's sins means to die without Christ who's the only Savior of sinners, to die without a Savior, to die without your sins forgiven, to die without the righteousness our Lord came to earn and to give to believing sinners, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. You don't want to die without the glorious dress of the blood and righteousness of Christ. The death of Christ to cancel our guilt and the life of Christ to procure a righteousness for us according to the law that we can't produce ourselves. 
To die in your sins is the worst possible way to die. And you might be saying, well, I don't know. I was watching the news the other day, and a family with eight children got stuck on the railroad track, and the train blasted through them at whatever speed, and the car was in, the van was in smithereens, and there were limbs and decapitated corpses and heads 15 feet apart. That seems to be a pretty bad way to die. It's not the worst way to die. This way is worse. Even if you die peacefully, with your loved ones around you. If you die in your sins, it's worse than getting slammed by a locomotive. Because there's there's no hope. So this is terrifying words. So I would be a terrible gospel minister if I said, let's pray and go home. So a second contemplation. Though these are terrifying words, they don't have to be, right? They don't have to be terrifying words because if you... Don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins, seems to have some implied promise in it. What if I do believe that I am? You won't die in your sins, right? It doesn't have to be terrifying words. These can be marvelous and soul-strengthening words and reminders to us that I have believed that thou art the Christ, thou art the Son of the living God. If I die, I won't die in my sins as bad as my life might look and be sometimes. If I'm in Christ, I'm a part of this new creation. It could be put this way. If you believe that I am, the I am of Exodus 3, you will not die in your sins. And you can be hit by a locomotive and be blown to smithereens. But you won't die in your sins. If you believe that Jesus, though he was and is human flesh, is more than human flesh, is also, I am God, Yahweh, you will not die in your sins. So he is not only the Messiah coming from the line of David, born of Mary, very man, he is also eternal son of God, assuming flesh. And as son of God, he is the I am, the one who exists the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is none like Jesus. God and man, two whole perfect and distinct natures, borrowing the language from somebody else, inseparably joined together in one person, hypostatic union, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and and man, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Do not have to be terrifying words. They can be gospel liberating, sinner liberating words. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able. If you're too stubborn, the hymn writer says, he is able again. And if you still don't want to come, it says, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. You say, well, I I guess I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. I got some doubts. Take your doubts to the Savior. And he will forgive you. 
And the third and final contemplation, these words, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, must be understood in the context of John's stated purpose for writing. I mentioned this yesterday. It would be atrocious for a preacher to preach from the gospel of John and it just be all law, no gospel, no good news for sinners. John tells us why he wrote what he wrote, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you might have life eternal in His name. Okay? The Christ refers to the specially anointed servant of the Lord as promised in the Old Testament. The Son of God refers to a natural relation to the Father, who is God. So taken together, the words the Christ, the Son of God, refer to our Lord's humanity and divinity in the one person of the Son. He is man in order to live, suffer, die, be raised, and ascend all for us. He is God in order to assure that all obstacles between God and man will be overcome. He's our only hope. Nothing will and nothing can stop him from doing what he came to do, bring many Sons of God to glory, ultimately ushering all gospel believers into a state of glorious happiness in God. So I hope that you believe that he is who he claims to be, the great I am, as mysterious as that is. And if you have already believed that, and maybe for a long time, It's probably another question you need to ask. Why did you believe in the first place? I can tell you this much. It's not because you're great. It's because God is great. And His mercy is great. With His great love with which He loved us. God made us alive together with Christ. That's not a, I made myself alive in Christ. It's a God thing, Ephesians 2. If you've already had faith in Christ... Just know that this is a this is a God thing in your life. It's a gift. Repentance and faith are gifts. They're not. Uh, uh, it's not obedience to the law, meriting salvation. Faith is a passive instrument that brings its soiled hands to the gospel promises and says, "I'll take them. I want them." And then. You read the Bible and you go, oh, even faith itself is a gift of God. So the only grounds we have to boast is in the Lord, not ourselves. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask that you would burn it into our heads and hearts and anything that wasn't true to your intent, that you'd cause us to forget that. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. We pray that he'd wield it graciously in our souls. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.